a, a lot of why I was struggling so much was I was overworking. And yeah. so it's just ridiculous to think the way to work through overworking is by working harder. Like that you would be, I would, I would, I would, I would bet, I would bet large amounts of money that and that's a common response. I know it yes. sounds ridiculous when you say it, but I don't think it's that uncommon. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, you know, we were talking about building uh, computers. It's like a, a memory leak where you have some sort of recursive thing going on inside your operating system and it's just eating up all the resources, but you're like, but this is how it was designed. It's not supposed to, you don't want this result, but this is how we have achieved up until then. And so if you end up in the situation, you just end up running yourself into the ground because that is how you are designed. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. And hey, this is Paul Gibbons. Great to be back and thank you for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share. Think Bigger, Think Better is looking for a sponsor, probably a not-for-profit, a family office. If listeners are connected to Bezos, Gates, or Soros, or another foundation, have them hit me up. Now, returning listeners will know that we've covered depression with clinical psychologist Steve Holen back in the day. Please check that podcast out at Interesting. Today, we talked to Newton Cheng, who's a Google executive, a power lifter, and a dad. After a struggle, which I'll let him describe, he became an advocate and activist and a keynote speaker on mental health at work. He is director of health and performance at Google. Born and raised in Macomb, Illinois, he earned a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering from the University of Illinois and an MBA from Berkeley. He spent 15 years at Google developing, launching, and scaling programs aimed at helping Googlers to thrive. Today, he oversees a global portfolio of Google's physical and digital health and well-being amenities. He's the father of two young girls and has set world, U.S., and state records for powerlifting as a four-time national champion in the United States. His goal is to offer a different model of vulnerable leadership that inspires culture change in the workplace so that we can take better care of ourselves and others. And welcome, Newton, to Think Bigger, Think Better. How you doing? I'm good. Very happy to be here, Paul. Thanks for having uh, me. I'm happy to, happy, to, happy to see you. And I gather that you're going to give Taylor Swift a run for her money with uh, something that happened on social recently. <laughs> well, so I'm discovering there's echelons of, I think, uh, there, there's echelons of influencer status on Instagram. So right, right, right. what's happening right now is I posted a reel about two weeks ago where all it was was I just filmed myself kind of walking through the dark halls of uh, an office. And I was arriving in the office at, um, I think it was about 4.50 a.m. I said 4.30 a.m. and that yeah. was not accurate. And now people are calling me on it because it's Instagram. But so about 4.50 a.m. And I said, I'm getting in super early, not because I'm super committed, but because I didn't plan well. And I, it was just an acknowledgement of like, hey, we have stuff to do. I knew it was coming, 
I didn't plan well, and now I'm behind. Now I have to get in super early. And I posted that two weeks ago. Normally what happens is I get, let's say, a 1,000 plays on a reel, and then let's say 50 likes. It was quiet for about two weeks, and then in the last few days, it's just started escalating, 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 and now it's at almost a million plays and I think almost 15,000 likes. And so that's one thing. And then I found out the Taylor Swifts of the world get about 25 million plays. So I got a ways to go. <laughs> you do. You do. <laughs> but one million's not too shabby. But what's your and, theory about what resonates with people about the message? Like, what was the message? Yeah, so I started asking people really directly. At first, kind of tongue-in-cheek, I, I just started posting stories saying, who reposted this? Was it Oprah? Was it The Rock? I had people vote on it. Uh, interestingly, the, the person who won the poll of who reposted it was Goku, which is a fictional anime character who does not actually can't post anything on Instagram, but uh, right. that's who that's who people voted for. But then people started direct messaging me and saying, hey, the reason that I followed you was, well, one, Instagram just fed it to me in in my feed. And the reason I followed you was because you're um, saying a lot of the things that a lot of us feel out loud. You're being transparent and it seems like you're being authentic. And I don't see other people doing that. And, you know, I, I, I think there's there's some truth to that. Now, an interesting other reaction that's happened that you won't get on, say, a LinkedIn because there's a professional decorum was I found the boundary of where this message doesn't resonate. Can I can I swear on this podcast? Uh, yeah, please do. <laughs> OK, it, it, so some people say don't look at your comment section. Yeah, I yeah. actually love looking at the comment section yeah. to see where does the shit talking start and why? Because that's that's the edge of who you can engage in positive ways. Yeah. And, you, you know, we, we were talking about resistance on a, another uh, discussion thread somewhere. Mm. And so it's like seeing like, ah, that's the resistance. That's where whatever I put out there, it sparked engagement, but not the type I want. And why did that happen? And so it's, it's interesting. People, some people are saying, I love that you're being authentic and I love that you're being transparent. Other people are saying, this is performative horseshit where you are propping up a culture of someone actually used the, the term corporate slavery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and so it's, it's super fascinating to me. I can imagine. Do you want to, for people who don't know you and, and I dare say uh, there'll, there'll be a few, well, tell them what's the story. What's your story. My, you can tell, you can, you can go, you can go back to birth if you like, but maybe, you know, even going back to teenage years or going back to your workplace years, like what's the story? Like, how did we get to where we are? And, and what was the sort of, I don't want to call it an epiphany, but what was that big moment that kind of shifted things for you in your life? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with like the framing I always give of where I am today and then we'll dial back to, yes, yes. to where I started and um, how those two things might connect. Cool. cool. So today, uh, I think of my life in three big roles, family man, uh, yep. I'm a competitive power lifter, and I'm a leader in this field of health and performance where I'm really interested in driving culture change and creating this culture of well-being uh, that enables people to take better care of themselves and each other, specifically around work. 
Yeah. And so those are the three big roles. Um, I'm director of health and performance at Google. Um, back on the athlete bucket, I'm a world champion powerlifter, so taking that pretty far. And then I, uh, I've been married for, let's see, I got married in 2009, married for 13 years, and then I have two wonderful daughters via adoption. And you and look so, like, it's like 600 pounds. You're like 550 pounds, right? Just for people who don't know like what powerlifters do, it's a ridiculous looking amount of weight. My, so. my probably most ridiculous lift is I have deadlifted 562 pounds at a body weight of 125 pounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and it's, I, it's incredible. Yeah, at, at the young age of 45, which is considered old in powerlifting terms, even though I feel pretty good. Uh, so that's three and a half times your body weight, give or take. Uh, four and a half. Four and a half times your body weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a lot. Uh, so, so that's like me. That would be like me lifting a car. That's <laughs> something like that. <laughs> anyway. All right. Good. So, so those are your three roles in life. And then a couple of years ago, pandemic time, some of the shit hit the fan personally for you. So what, you know, what do you want to say about that? Yeah. So during the pandemic, um, like so many others, uh, I, I really started to struggle with my mental health. As we went into the pandemic, I kind of leaned in and said, you know, this is when you show up as a leader and you try to uh, you try to lead and you try to take care of others. And so my team and I, we took on more work. We spent more time checking on in with one another. But then ultimately, um, it became kind of unsustainable. And so if the pandemic began in March, it was about around summer of, of that same year, 2020, where I was in a meeting with my vice president and his team. We're all on video chats. We're all in our thumbnail boxes. And we were doing these check-ins and we just answered the question, how are you doing? And it got to me and someone sent me a little chat message and said, hey, I feel like people aren't really being real. Can you say something real? And, <laughs> if you, and so, <laughs> you know, up until then, just just for background, like I am a straight Asian American male who was raised in a small farm town in the Midwest. Like I do not have any drop of socialization in me to be vulnerable to talk about mental health openly, especially in the, in the workplace. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so it got to me and I, I started pondering like in, in milliseconds, like, okay, what is real for me right now? What is real? And the big surprise to me was uh, I started to cry. And I said, right now I'm struggling because the number of days that I'm proud of how I'm showing up as a father is going down and I don't know how to turn that around. And that was horrifying to me for two reasons. One, I talked about how I had been socialized and I was, I was socialized not to ever do that. Don't show vulnerability. Don't show weakness. Definitely never cry as a man and, and then don't cry at work. Right. And I, you broke, I did all you broke of that. So these cultural taboos. You did it all, right? Yes. It was the royal flush of trash mall, right? Yeah. Of, cultural taboos as a straight Asian American male raised in the Midwest. And then the second thing was once I said those words out loud, I had never articulated why I was feeling struggle so clearly. But once I put those words on the table, it was like the first time I had heard them myself. 
but I knew they were 100% true. And I knew I didn't know how to get out of that situation. Yeah. So, so that was my big, my first big, like, this is a red flag. Like, you are not in a good place, and you don't know how to get out of it. But you didn't quit right then and there, right? You, know, you kept at it for a little bit, right? No, I, I went back into my normal way of being, which was to shove that down and say, okay, we're going to use mental toughness and grit. We're going to yeah. power through this. It's going to get better. Yeah, yeah that's, we're gonna, we'll get double down. Yeah. I need to work and, harder. Yes. I, just need, I just need to work harder. It'll all be good. Yes. <laughs> Which, it's right. I'm just, yeah. I, I mean, I'm joking. I'm laughing. But that when people are hyperachievers, uh, we'll talk about this when we get into the recovery phase, you, that, that's their superpowers. And, and it's our comfort zone to do those things that we excel at, you know? So, you know, if you're a very charismatic leader, and, and this, this, is, this, is, this is the trouble I had when I was leading a small company of 50 people, and charisma and persuasion and inspiration, those are kind of superpowers. But when times get really tough, it's not what people want to hear, or at least they don't want to hear it first. They want you to, to be where they are, to get what they are, which is anxious, we're freaked out. We think, I think this was 2008, you know, the recession's going to hit. We're not going to have jobs and everything like that. And I was there doing my cheerleader, like, rah, rah, rah thing and talking very rationally about economic circumstances and how, you know, we're at the bottom and everything like that. And it just felt like a, a wet balloon. So, so doing what we do naturally and super duper well, when times get tough, we tend to do more of that. It's not always the right move, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's not, it's not the right move. And I think when we get further into your story, I have to know that when one of the, your things was you were going to plan and work your way out of not feeling well. And, and maybe that's not the answer, right? Cause that's your, yes. superpower. That's your superpower. I mean, the, the way I think about it is a, a lot of why I was struggling so much was I was overworking. And yeah. so it's just ridiculous to think the way to work through overworking is by working harder. Like that you would be, I would I would I would I would bet I would bet large amounts of money that and that's a common response. I know it yes. sounds ridiculous when you say it, but I don't think it's that uncommon. Yeah, it, it's kind of like you know we were talking about building uh, computers. It's like a, a memory leak where you have some sort of recursive thing going on inside your operating system, and it's just eating up all the resources. But you're like, but this is how it was designed. It's not supposed to. You don't want this result, but this is how we have achieved up until then. And so if you end up in the situation, you just end up running yourself into the ground because that is how you are designed. And it's, and it's important to note, like we get a lot of goodies from, you know, one of the things when I did some therapy way back in the day, 25 years ago or something, and he, we were talking about some, I can't remember what flaw in my character. He said, you got to get a lot of goodies from that flaw in your character, whatever that flaw was. I can't remember what it was. It was overworking, something like that. Like, do you, you know, you want to, you say you want to get rid of it. And so it's like, you know, good stuff out of that, right? Like whatever it is, it's wealth or success or fame or whatever it's right. Yeah. So yeah. We, get a lot, we get a lot of goodies from our neuroses, which is one of the things that not keeps them in place, I believe. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, well, well, let me let me continue with the story. Yeah, so, yeah, go, sorry, we uh, segued. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I uh, so exactly what you were saying. I I thought you know what I will use mental toughness and grit. I will work harder to get through this period <laughs> where I am overworked. And what I found was so th uh, that meeting I talked about that was in the summer. By November, that's when I first started to feel like I was just struggling to get out of bed. Yeah. 
by February, that was the first time there was a morning where I physically could not get out of bed because I was just overwhelmed with this sense of dread. And that was another huge aha for me because 10 years before that, there's a former VP from Google, Daryl Heinrich, who's been very open about his struggles with mental health and depression. He talked about having this experience of not being able to get out of bed when he was overwhelmed with depression. And I had heard that story 10 years ago, and it didn't really click because I had never experienced that up until here I was 10 years later struggling to get out of bed. And that my brain recalled that story and said, you are probably struggling with what Derek was struggling with. I think you need professional help. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So he planted the seed 10 years ago. That's 10 years. And, you know, it's funny that, that about talking about planting seeds and talking about the work you're doing, like on social and the work you're doing, kind of raise awareness in the world or something like that. You don't know which of these seeds is going to grow into an oak and which of them. So, you know, uh, he's doing a lot of talking and something he said just resonated with you somewhere down in the bowels of your limbic system or something like that. You know, it's stuck there. And then when the time has come, you sort of said, oh, wow, you know, I can do this. Is, this, is, this is an out for me. It's very cool. It, well, you know, it's interesting because we we know via things like marketing, for example, that uh, a customer needs, I forget what the number is, um, but they, they need some number of touch points with information about your product. It's something right. like seven or 11 before they will take action. Yeah. But if we're talking about something that's much deeper behavior change, like mental health, it, like it, it, it's actually not that big a stretch to say it might take 10 years of a drip campaign for you to get behavior change with this person. Yeah. Yeah. There you are. So, so what happened? So how did Google react? First of all, cause I think we want to talk a little bit about the corporate side of things, like how, how this landed with Google. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think when we say this, there's probably a few things where you expect, like, how might Google react? One might be when I started to tell people around me that I was struggling with mental health and I needed to take action. And that was specifically going on mental health leave. Two was how did they react when I went on mental health leave and then came back? And then three, how have they reacted as I've been very public talking about my struggles with mental health, as well as trying to drive conversation about, hey, should we should we be having a different conversation about how we live and work? Because this does not seem to be working for many, many people. And so if I start with the first one of how did Google react when I had to start telling people I was struggling with my mental health? The way that worked was First, um, I went and used the employee assistance provider provided by Google, and they set me up with a therapist, and that is a private confidential service. So technically, while I was at Google, no one, no one knew, except for a few close friends I talked to about this. Yep. Eventually, the therapist I was working with said that I should consider going on mental health leave, and this is where it started to get very real, because... In order to do that, I'd have to start, I'd, I'd have to tell my boss, I'd have to tell my team and my peers. And so, you know, me having a lot of fear around this of what, what might this do to my career? I started asking these questions, trying to figure out how do I frame this like in a business case type right. way. Sure. And the way that my 
a therapist helped me piece together a message and I, I'm not saying this is the way everyone should do it, but this is the way that I did it to placate my own fears. I asked him, so what happens when you recommend to other people, they go on leave, like what happens when they do, what happens when they don't? And he said, well, when I recommend someone goes on leave, let's say, I, I forget what the percentage was, but he said something like only 20% actually do it when he initially tells them to go on leave. What he finds is those people end up on leave maybe six to eight weeks. They come back. A lot of the time they're in a better place. They experience some sort of post-traumatic growth and they show up differently at work and they move forward with their lives. Very good. That, that's a great thing. What he finds for a lot of the other people is sometimes they work through it, but a lot of the time they end up in an even worse place. And now instead of six to eight weeks out, they're out for six to 12 months. Ooh. Okay. And then the thing, the thing where he didn't really articulate the why was, and you end up in a deeply wounded place. Yeah. And what I took from that was, you know, for me, the wounds, um, it's all about relationships. And so I started thinking about, I'm going to hurt, my marriage. I'm going to hurt my relationship with my kids. Like I can't do that. That is, you know, that is off the table. So I cannot go down a route where that's a possibility. So for me, that was, that was what made me determined to say, I will take the leave sooner rather than later. And it also gave me a framing for now in, in a business framing to say, well, are the two the two choices here are go sooner and I will be out six to eight weeks or wait and I may, may be out six to 12 months or worse if I've really screwed up my life. Yeah, or worse, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it doesn't always have a happy ending, right? Not at all. Not, 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 not. Things. Totally. Good. And Google, yeah. Google stepped up. So 100%, right? You they did. A, give them an A plus, right? I think. Is that right? Uh, uh, you know, Google is a huge, huge company. And so I can only evaluate on like the policies and programs that uh, were available to me and the people who I work with and how they responded. Those people stepped up in a huge, huge way. The programs, the services, they were huge for me. So I was able to go on short-term disability to take care of my mental health. Um, there was nothing but support from my boss, from my peers, from my team. I think everyone was extremely understanding. Um, I, to, to be fair, it, I took a lot on myself to say, I'm going to do everything I can to minimize the impact of my leave and to, to do the planning, to make sure things are delegated, to even use this as a time for stretch opportunities for other people to take yeah. on some of my responsibilities. Yep. And so, you know, it, it wasn't like I just pieced out and disappeared one day. But there, I felt no resistance from anyone. I felt everyone really pushed to make sure they weren't stoking any sense of shame in me and making sure I felt like, hey, if you're going to do this, you have my back. You have my support. And well, I'm that, so grateful. I mean, I, 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 I mean I, it's not for you to write grade your code. That does sound like an A plus to me. But one of the things that we know from the fact and the data is that only half the people who suffer seek help. I don't know what the numbers are at Google, maybe higher, maybe lower. I mean, Google's a 
a very high performing company and there are, are pressures that people who work at less high performing companies probably you know don't begin to understand so i don't know what the percentage will be at google but let's say half the people get help so uh, and uh, here's a theory that i have is by the time they get help the shit has got really very bad <laughs> and so we already have uh, in, uh, people who are in, impaired and not only doing damage perhaps in their own lives, but also damage in the workplace. I mean, I had at one time in my life, and I don't want to say too much about this, but worked for somebody who had rather severe mental health issues. And there were 50 people working for him. And the, the effect of that leader's mental health issues on the people that worked for him were substantial. And I had a dozen people come to me and say, you know, I'm not making it right now. Uh, you know, um, so uh, so there you are. I mean, too few people get help. By the time they do get help, it's perhaps too late. And by the time they do get help, they've perhaps done a bunch of damage. So, absolutely, yeah. You, you know, you, you depending on the data sets you look at, you can see the rise of things. And and this is not specific to Google. This is, uh, you know, in the business world, you uh, can find evidence of things like increase in things like workplace hostility, substance abuse, um, effects on families and marriages. Um, all of these things, you know, maybe they're unrelated to mental health, but if you start to think of people's lives as systems, you can see that for many people, these are kind of the unintended consequences of maladaptive coping mechanisms. Yeah. You know, for, for stress or mental health, um, challenges that maybe aren't being dealt with either further upstream or in ways that are effective. We certainly agree on one thing though, that it's much more than just having a good EAP program in place. And I think, I think I yes. read the numbers. I'll share some 92% of, you know, big companies have some sort of EAP in place. So, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the ante these days. Uh, uh, what I know Google's on the front foot, and they're much more proactive and they're thinking about resilience and they're thinking about leadership and they're thinking about culture and stuff like that. So what can you say about, um, I'm not sure to say uh, Newton's not on this podcast as an official spokesman of Google policies. So these are his personal reflections rather than, you know, a categorical statement of what precisely Google does. But what, 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 what do you see that Google is trying to do that's preventative or uh, before, you know, things get, difficult for people, for individuals. I, I think one of Google's superpowers, and it's also a, a big challenge, is that it is massively decentralized and, and with a huge culture of empowerment. Yeah. And so if we, you know, um, the way I discovered you and your work was via one of your books on change management. So if we, let's say we put this, uh, a change management lens on this where like, yes, we need programs like the EAP, and we need things like short-term disability so people, if they end up in bad place, can take care of themselves. But what are the things we got to work on upstream so that whatever system we've designed as an organization, we don't have all these mental health challenges as kind of an unintended uh, side output of the way we run our business. So um, a lot of that is cultural. And so there's this big conversation around like, well, how does cultural transformation happen? And you could say that um, I could look at the CEO of a company like a Google or an Apple or, or a Meta and say, okay, all powerful CEO, I want you to wave your wand, change our ways of working 
like just deem new ones. And um, that will enable us to have much more space in our lives to take care of ourselves. I don't think that's going to work for a few reasons. One, right. like the fundamental, uh, I'll call it operating system of these companies is we need to bring together some of the world's highest achievers who have learned to drive themselves in both good and bad ways. Like that's not, that's not Google's fault. That's not Apple's fault. It's like, that's just how we are in this society. And we put them into an organization with huge, huge ambitions. And then we give them pretty much free reign, not free reign, but a lot of freedom because they are so talented to figure out how are we going to achieve these big goals. And if I frame it that way and say, do you think it's possible we might drive each other to like the edge of what's sustainable as humans? Like, yeah, that's probably, probably it's probably going to happen. Yeah. And so, so the CEO can't just wave their wand and say, no, we're going to change things because the entire organization is designed. It's doing what it's designed to do. And so there's, there's going to have to be more gradual, um, culture change over time. And that's going to require a lot of experimentation throughout parts of the, the organization to figure out what's right, what's a different way of doing this, what works and what doesn't. So what I see with Google is that not just in since the pandemic, but for over 10 years, they've kept a constant drumbeat. And this goes from all the way at a grassroots level, all the way up to the CEO of saying, we need higher awareness around mental health. We need better support for people's mental health. We acknowledge we don't know how, like, you know, we're not perfect. We don't know how to magically fix these things, but we need to keep trying. And that as a foundation, if you have that as foundation, you have this acknowledgement of it's going to take a lot of time and experimentation uh, across the system. I don't know how you would do much better than that. Like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And like, yeah, I'd like things to be better faster, but I don't know how you would drive change uh, what what would you would do realistically to drive change faster? You know, it's it's funny. There's so so many layers to this as well. I mean, one of the things is, of course, we live in a capitalist world, so the super superordinate, you know, yeah, uh, purpose of organizations is to make money. And one way of looking at looking after employees' mental health and helping them do that for themselves and providing support and changing your culture where perhaps overwork isn't such a culturally acceptable norm or, you know whatever these things you want to do is that they could be damaging to the bottom line and you know that's unacceptable and certainly damaging to the bottom line in the short term but what we find with really forward-thinking organizations around you know do we want to be an inclusive culture? Do we want to focus on diversity and inclusion? But will that cost us money? Do we not be hiring the best people? That's an argument I saw one of these future work gurus uh, who uh, I, I kind of I had a lot of admiration to him to this particular post who said that, you know, we need to get over ourselves with the DEI and we need to get back to a meritocracy. And of course I said, well, I've never been a meritocracy on the planet, bro, but uh, <laughs> you, you find me one, but um, uh, so but that's one thing, but these aren't win lose zero sum games. So you're not a sustainable company or, and, but you don't have a zero, a zero sum game between sustainability and making money between diversity and inclusion and making money between mental health and making money. 
that's a way of thinking that uh, is old school and and uh, deficient, and we can find ways of making ourselves a more robust, more resilient, more profitable, better place to work uh, by doing the right things. And isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, it sounds almost like super idealistic. It's like we can do the right thing here and make money for our shareholders. And yes. Sometimes it sounds like that's too good to believe. That's like, uh, what was that book? Uh, Condeed, right? The best of all possible worlds. You live in a mm. dream world, bro. It's not the way the real world works. But, you know, I'd like to believe it does, right? And I think you'd like to believe it does, too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, for for uh, Candide, uh, just one side reference. I never actually read the book. But I got to play the trumpet solo in the overture for, right. for the musical all the way back in high school. So it has a special place. In the way, way back in the day, yeah. Um, but I, I think I, I see this as um, when we end up demanding that the system change in ways that like if, if your solution can be framed as we need to burn the current system down and build a new one. I'm kind of already out of the conversation yeah. because I just don't think that's the way forward. Like you burn the system down. It's not like the system's producing zero value. It's producing a lot of value and, and helping a lot of people right now. Right. So yeah. I don't think that's the right solution in yeah. almost every scenario I can think I, of. I don't think it is true. I just don't think it will ever happen. I mean, I don't think we'll ever have, you know, and, yeah. you know, if you did decide that the right way to proceed to get out of capitalism was to burn down capitalism and some of there'd be 300 million people in the United States would starve, you know, and yes. that, no, yeah. you know you can't deal with that, that kind of. I think we're, we're all waiting for the moment in, in Star Wars where someone launches a missile and blows up the Death Star and we all, cheer and now the universe is better like, yeah don't it just, yeah don't see it yeah i i i see like uh, so much of how we get stuck in this conversation as um it's more a challenge of our own abilities to acknowledge the complexity of the system to say yes the lifeblood of these organizations in the capitalist society it's money but yep. that's not disconnected from conversations around mental health and dei it's really hard to measure those things and to understand them, but we can't deny that these things are connected because they're human systems. And, the, yeah. and those things are all describing parts of humanity. And so that's where I have a great respect for these companies like, like Google, you know, like, like the apples of the world, like, yeah, they don't have it all together, but despite the, financial challenges the world is going through, they continue to make space for these conversations as an acknowledgement of these things are connected. Indeed. You know, I'm a radical and a reformer, but I also have been, and in the, I mean, considered to be, a, you know, a bit of a maverick, but I've been in the business world since 1980. And I will say, you know, while we aren't quote unquote there yet, you know, to think about, to talk about sustainability, in the 1980s, you would have been thought of as a, as a moron. To talk about people finding meaning and purpose in their work and a deeper connection to their work in the 1980s, you would have been thought of as a flake. To talk about a diversity and inclusion as being an important metric for, for businesses in the 1980s, you would have, again, been ridiculed. And so all of these things that we take for granted as being normal conversations now, and as I say, we're not there yet, but capitalism, is unrecognizably different in the sorts of things we're allowed to talk about inside capitalist societies and inside 
capitalist corporations and ain't nobody more capitalist than Google, right? I mean, you know, you all making some cheddar back up <laughs> back yeah. there. Yeah, 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 Google's business model seems pretty effective. Yeah. So, so I I'm an, I mean I'm kind of like if I look backward I'm a, I'm a real optimist that we're going to be able to reform the system from within and without giving up, you know, without putting 200 million people out of work as we blow up the Death Star, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think I was at a conference speaking on a panel on mental health, and I told my story about my own struggles with mental health. And afterwards, um, one of the panelists came up to me, and he's, um, I think, maybe maybe two decades older than me. And he said, I really respect what you did. There was a time in my working life where if someone had done that, they would have instantly been fired. Instantly. 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 Yeah. And, and so just thinking about we've gone from that to where I'm being invited on a panel to do that and to be applauded. Like sure, my, right. com my company paid for me to go be on that panel. Yeah. Oh, you know, the audience applauded that while I was on the panel. Like that's a huge amount of change. It is a matter of change. I had my own struggles in the 1980s. I mean, I was I was a uh, heavy, heavy, heavy drinker on Wall Street. Not not that I was the only one, but I was more impaired than most. And when they found out, it was just like you're done. See you later. Doesn't yeah. matter how. And that was the attitude. There's no there was no second thought. Like maybe we should offer this guy some help or try and save his career or anything like that. And I'm not. I'm not bitter about that. That's that's the way world. In fact, that sort of stuff happening to me is what got me to recover 30 odd years ago is that sort of thing. So, um, but there we are, here we are, here we are, here we are, where we're uh, deep into it here. I think we, 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 we set ourselves a goal for an hour. I don't want to be strict about that. Um, what do I do want to ask you is, um, well, there are a couple of wave the wand questions. Like where's the leading edge do you think for organizations and for the world um, in, in the field of mental health? I mean, it's an expansive question, so have at it. So I'll, it's hard for me to say this is what's right for organizations, but yeah. um, I'll say this is what I'm experimenting with right now. And so what I am trying to do is say, like, where is that edge? I'm, I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance up to that edge. I might take a step over that edge and see what happens mm. because there's no data over the edge. It's kind of like we're trying to figure out what's inside this black hole where it's mm -hmm. like we, we don't know what's beyond the event horizon. We don't. And, but but I've decided, you know what, I'm just going to put one leg beyond the event horizon. I'm going to take one step and I'll see if my leg comes back. How, what does that look like? So for me, first, it was just to put my story out there. Um, okay. And so I did a coming back from men's mental health or from mental health leave. I said, I know the data around how many are struggling. I've talked to a lot of people. I don't think this is the culture that any of us wants, but we're all silencing each other due to this, this stigma that we've created for one another. And so I said, if I have the opportunity to tell my story, I'm going to do it. And just kind of like that, the universe popped up an opportunity. And uh, a friend of mine runs a podcast on men's mental health. And he had me on, and I told my story as openly and honestly as possible. And then this is where I, I took a step into the black hole to see, okay, what's going to happen. Right. I yeah, doesn't have to have a happy ending, right? Yeah. It, so he doesn't have a huge following, but I once the podcast was was posted, 
first I posted it on Instagram and Facebook and I got lots of applause and, and positive support. Yeah. But then I thought, well, aren't you trying to drive change in the workplace? So shouldn't you post this on LinkedIn in front of your professional network? And oh, that, that's yeah, the black hole right up in there. That was the black hole. I, I thought yeah. my initial reaction was hell no. And then the value driven side of my brain said, but you know what the right thing to do is if, if you're being true to your values. And yeah. so I, I spent like an, evening drafting a post i mean my wife read it <laughs> like the first one right the first like the post is like yeah i'm gonna spend a long time on this bad boy <laughs> yeah yeah and, th and then i i posted it and then i instantly sent an email to a bunch of people and said hey you might see this on linkedin this might look a little weird i wanted you to be aware of this yeah. and if you believe in what i'm doing can you reshare it amplify it that's actually really well managed you know to be fair i mean yeah yeah, it, it was. It, and what happened? Uh, it got twenty times the engagement of anything I had posted on LinkedIn up until that right. point. There you go. It, and so th that was one big aha. But then the other aha was the direct messages. Not that kind of engagement. Like what the heck? What the heck? You what? What the heck, what the f are you talking about on this on LinkedIn for? Not that kind of engagement. I I don't think. Oh, uh, it, the, it was yeah. positive well, engagement. Well, welcoming. Yeah. Yes, it was, it was likes, it was positive comments. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I'm struggling too. And then the really interesting thing was to see who would reach out to me via direct messages or even in the hallway and say, Hey, I saw that. I'm so happy you posted that because I'm struggling too. But a lot of those people were afraid to even to comment or even hit like right. on that post. Right. If I comment on this and say, you know, I have these same things too. Am I, you know, am I putting my career at risk? These are real things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so, so that was my first aha was, okay, one, there is a hunger for this conversation. And then two, this is a bit of a beacon to a lot of people because the stigma is so strong. We think we're the only ones who are uniquely suffering. Uh, yeah. And so and I just you know, I mean, I, I mean, just as a, as a parentheses, uh, um, something like 25% of people will have a depressive episode in their life. And I think I, I can't remember, is it 15% at any one time are, are, are afflicted? That's, uh, that's just depression. I, I'm, I'm not sure on depression. I know McKinsey ran a survey that said something like 59% of us, and this was looking, I think, at both anxiety and depression, have yeah. had at least one mental health challenge or have at least one mental health challenge. Yeah. And they so are. It's, it's not people who aren't incarcerated or, or, or in institutions. I mean, those, those are the, these working people that yes. are probably the data points in there. So those 59% of the people who are, quote unquote, making it. Uh, yes. There's a whole bunch of people who ain't making it, who don't make it onto such surveys. So if you think about the numbers, considerably worse than that probably. And with the stigma around self-reporting, whatever the numbers say, I would be extremely suspicious. And, and I would suspect my hypothesis would be the numbers might be actually be double the numbers that we find in the, in the data from the CDC and the WHO and all those places. You know, I guess. Totally. If, yeah. if say 15 years ago, if you had given me a, survey at work that you told me was to assess my mental health, I would probably be instantly trying to figure out how do I game this survey so it looks like my mental health is really solid because right. I don't know what you're going to do with this data. Right, 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 right. Yep. Right. Um, 
so back to to the black hole so yeah. that that was like layer one of the black hole was That's okay cool. i'm going I'm to start sharing my story layer two was as i started talking to people what i found was mental health was only the starting point for this conversation so some people would there were people struggling with depression and anxiety some people with um some uh conditions such as as bipolar where they really need professional help and they were hiding these things at work but for the vast majority of people what they really wanted to talk about was i am really struggling to live a life that i want to live and work in the way that we work in the society right so it was like how do i build the life i want to live with the way we're expected to work in the society and like i don't have any easy answers for that but it was clear the gravity of the conversation was there and so that was the next layer of the black hole because like wait if i bring up that conversation that starts to bring up questions about the organizations we work for and how they're run and how we run them yeah yeah and, and, and we can't and one of the things we can't do well i was at ibm and you're at google we, we can't publicly criticize our organizations and and perhaps we shouldn't right perhaps we yeah. should have the tough conversations inside the organization where they matter rather than having you know it's like if you have a friend who's got a problem you can either gossip about them behind their back or you can take it to them right and we should take the tough conversations to the organization and it's such easier to, to flame and badmouth from the outside and not to have the tough conversation about what are we doing about this internally uh so yeah yeah i i think is as long again um while i'm 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 edging into the black hole I yeah. am of the philosophy, again, that the solution is never burn down the system. And so if I have that guardrail and I look at how, say, my employer is trying to help people to, like, yes, you joined Google. It's a trillion-dollar company that still has huge, huge ambitions. Like, that's the baseline. Like, it's hard to imagine that you would join a Google, and it's not going to be really challenging. And so underneath that, what they've said is, we acknowledge that, and we're going to do everything we can to um, to try to help you take care of yourselves and your families, and we're going to create space to keep conversation going about how we do better. And so if your solution is not burn down the system, I'm like, I don't know how much more I could ask for. Like, this is pretty much a best-case scenario. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. Let me ask you a question. Uh, we don't, you and I don't live in a world where kind of like we give unsolicited freebie advice or something. I saw something, not the, not the way we roll <laughs> in the personal development world. But stay, you know, there are someone and there are many people who will listen to this will be, be perhaps wondering, first of all, whether they have mental issues. That would be one question. And then secondly, yeah, okay, I don't, because it's hard enough to acknowledge those things to yourself. Uh, yes. and, and then, and then, but what would you say to someone who's, where you might have been in January 2020 or March 2020, who's, hey, should I discuss this? Should I bring this up with my employer? Should I take some time? Should I seek a therapist? Like, what would you, what, what would your counsel be to this anonymous individual? Um, two things. One, one thing that was critical was I, I talked to a lot of friends who had their own mental health struggles and had, you know, before me, decided to be open about it. And so one that just it did two things one it made me feel less alone and then two it just started to give me some 
full color examples of, okay, what does this look like? And it didn't, their stories didn't sound that different from mine. And so that was my first aha of like, okay, maybe, you know, and I was still pretty resistant, but maybe I might have some mental health struggles. The second was that I actually went maybe. to a, maybe <laughs> I, I, I went to a, a therapist and got assessed and you, I could have gone in online and done the same assessment that sure. he had me go through. But I think yeah. the thing that. I think it's more real to a human being, you know? Yes. I, I think it, it, it is like whatever, but. It, it was it was that, and then he also has like a broad meta set of data of, of having talked to so many people. So after I saw right. my results, I was right. able to say like, well, orient me to the broader world. Like, what does this look like? And so, um, so I, I, really, I just want to summarize. So first of all, you wanted to acknowledge it to yourself. So you have to be self. The self honesty is a, almost a critical. Without that, there's nothing seen in Quanon you know, got to say it to yourself. And the second thing was, I think you tackled it in a semi-private way through the EAP to talk to a therapist who's counseled, you know, let's say many hundreds or maybe even many thousands of people who are in this kind of thing. And through that then, and I guess this third step really isn't a necessary, you may not, you may in seeing a therapist not need to take this third step, which is, you know, to say I need some time off at work. Yeah, I, I, I think even before the third step, so if I had to say um, say it a little differently, like than the way you synthesized it, was yeah. a lot of, I think what those initial steps did for me was it made me feel like I do not have a uniquely, I'm not uniquely flawed. Right. Honestly, like that's, that's the way I was feeling. It was like, yeah. uh, how did I, like I have so much going on for me. How did I F this up? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm the biggest F up in the world and I'm hiding it from everyone. Right, right, right. Yeah. Once I talked to my friends about it, I could at least say, OK, maybe five of us are the biggest F ups in the world. <laughs> but that was enough for me to say, OK, I'm going to stop denying it and say, like, OK, humans end up here. Let's let's keep investigating. So and then I started to accelerate. The other aha for me was when I went through that assessment. The therapist said to me, uh, you are showing major symptoms of depression and anxiety. And that was I, I, like my mind was blown. I, I said, like, what are you talking about? Right. And he said, like, well, you answered these yes to these questions. And it, yeah. it was it wasn't like I was on the border. It was right, like, right, right. like, yeah, I've been having these thoughts for a long time. And so he he said, uh, I said, isn't this just what it's like to work hard? And he said, well, it can be that, but this is also depression and anxiety. And then my final aha, which really changed the conversation for me, was, it, again, something came out of my mouth that I couldn't unhear. I said, but I felt this way off and on since high school. Christ. And that's where I had the aha of, I didn't even have the basic awareness of what this felt like or looked like because I, you know, was trained to suppress negative feelings and just power through it. Of course, achieve through it, I should say. A achieve through it. And I had gotten uh, applauded and rewarded for that. Yeah. I mean, you went to Berkeley. I mean, you know, you, this is, you, you, you know, you've had a very uh, illustrious uh, pedigreed career trajectory, if I may yes. say. This is like, so. this is success in the good life. Yeah. And so, but once I, I said that, 
it's almost like you've uh, you've had an injury, like you're you've had lower back pain for 20 years. And then finally, a doctor says, you know, your back's not supposed to hurt like that. Right. If you, if you do things differently, that was my aha. Like, wait a minute. I'm not supposed to be yeah. uh, off and on, you know, like overwhelmed with anxious thoughts, like feeling right. like I'm in a, a dark right. pit. Everybody doesn't feel this way. Yeah. I thought this was normal I mean, because it's the only thing you've ever known, right? And since yeah. we don't talk about these things, we don't have a benchmark with other people. In fact, I think you probably know one of the things I say in my writing is we compare how we feel inside with the pictures of other people on the covers of magazines or in television or yes. living the dream and every day, another day in paradise and all these kind of these things. So it's actually worse. <laughs> because yes. we think we're subnormal in this way that we feel, but we can't talk about it. And yeah, anyway. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I think there's, well, well, back to the statistics. Now, having putting my foot in the black hole and starting this conversation and meeting more people who are struggling, what I'm finding is um, it turns out that many of us are struggling this way. And so my mindset is starting to flip to say, okay, like I'm definitely not alone. I'm actually thinking that there's not a majority of us who might be struggling with our mental health, but it's a really large segment of the population. Sure. Maybe not a majority, but a very large minority for sure. For sure. Yes. Yeah. And so I I see uh, a a few things that are kind of flipping the conversation are one, this ongoing work around people trying to just destigmatize a topic. I think it's working. And then two, the data showing whether it's 20%, 50%, that's a huge segment of the population is struggling with mental health. Like that number is starting to normalize it. It's like, yeah, I mean, if one out of five of us have back pain, like I guess back pain is pretty normal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's more common than cancer. And we yeah. throw a lot of money at trying to cure cancer. This is worse than cancer because this is systemic, much more systemic than cancer is, you know, this is much more cultural. This is much more sneaky. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, well, very good. Very good. So we're, uh, I think we're in a good, I mean, so first of all, I think you you and I agree on one thing. It's a lot better than it used to be. And I think, you know, we've yes. seen some ways that it's going to get better. But back on a personal note, so what do, what are your laudable goals for this year with regard to mental health in the world, mental health at Google, you know, frame it however you like? Um, I haven't put hard metrics around this, but I think sourcing, uh, uh, more leads on public speaking events. So I'd like to do more public speaking. Yeah. Um, the workshop I've been teaching around how you talk about mental health in the workplace and how you systematize that into things like meeting check-ins and things like that. Is that public? Can people access this through one of whatever LinkedIn or something like that? Or uh, n- not yet. So that's one of the goals is okay. I'm uh, talking to some people about how might I change that into an e-course so it's easily accessible. All right. like the goal is how much how can I reach as many people so I can drive as much change as possible and then um, let's see yeah and then I think the, the final part where I speaking in the course and then you got a third plank to your strategy um, the third plank to my strategy is uh, I'm, ex- I'm I'm trying to evolve like the next foot into the black hole yeah. I, is first it was just just talk about mental health. Second was start to like um well one was share my story. That was that was first foot into the black yeah. hole. Second yeah. was yeah. to start to 
consider openly some of these questions about how we live and work. Um, I think the third one is I'm just trying to be extremely transparent now about to say, you know what? Uh, this came, this was actually kind of gifted to me by someone who I think meant to criticize me. And um, as I've been speaking publicly about my mental health and, yeah. you know, pretty visibly, someone in the organization, and this, this got back to me through various back channels, they said, they lodged this question of, what is Newton doing? Does he have one foot in and one foot out? And they were referring mm -hmm. to my role at Google. And my initial reaction, it was a, a little bit emotional. Like internally, I was like, I can imagine. Yeah. You know, like screw that person. Screw, screw that guy. Yeah. But then I, I stopped myself and I'm like, okay, that's, a, it's a fair observation. Like, why did I have that reaction? Sure. And when I interrogated that, what I came up with was the reason I had that reaction was because they're absolutely right. I do have one foot in and one foot out, but so does everyone else because we don't live our lives in the organizations where we work. Like sure. we have, we, we live with one foot there doing that work and we live with one foot out trying to live our lives, but I'm just not going to hide it anymore. Instead, I want to show all the ways that those two things collide, like where, where am I really successful in getting those things to work together? Where those things break down and I made poor choices that either hurt my role at work or hurt my role as a family man. And if I just start being really open about that, like what happens? And I don't think actually anything bad will happen to me because the same thing is happening with everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to talk more and more about that. And I think, you know, I mean, listen, I, I'd have to guess, but I would have thought that you've done enormously positive things for Google's reputation in the world as an employer through, through your work. No, I, no, yes. no question. Um, and, that is you know, my hypothesis. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I, I, I mean, I'm sure. I'm not sure, sure, sure. But, you know, I'm, I theorize. About, you know, one thing that I would wish, and uh, maybe we'll close with this, your reflections on this. We have a way of greeting one another which is in organizations, which is like when you pass them in the hallway or whatever, you say, how are you? And we, first of all, don't really care. And we don't really, don't really want an answer. And if I had, could wave a magic wand, one of the things I would stop is stop having that be a greeting. If you want to say hi, say hi. When you say, how are you? It, it's not as if um, you said you really want to know. And I would want us to say that like really and sincerely and connectedly more. And I'd want the answer to be more, but most of the time, and I'm going to throw a number up in the air. They say most, they say 50% of statistics are made up in the moment. But uh, so I'm going to throw in like 89% of the times people say, how are you? They don't give a shit. <laughs> there, that, that it's a perfunctory greeting. Um, and so I would wish that our language would change. So when we say, how are you? We really mean, how are you? I don't also mean in workplaces that the only acceptable answer is living the dream, baby, another day in paradise. A yep. sort of back flappy bro, you know, it's all good in the hood, bro, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't think that helps us. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that as we, as we wrap up? I, I love that. Maybe building on that, I think I'm, I'm on board with the high. And then I'm on board with, like, if I have specific questions, like, how was your Christmas or, or something, or did you enjoy your vacation? Like, I'm okay with that. But if we say, how are you? I, I feel like I want a t-shirt that says, 
you know, quote unquote, how are you? That's at least a 10 minute conversation. Would you like to have it? Right. <laughs> like let's let's it, it, it's kind of like if my uh yeah. my boss said i need to review your quarterly strategy i instantly think like at least a 30 minute meeting probably more right, right, um, right like why don't we set that same norm with the question how are you because we'd actually connect and we'd actually discuss or 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 we'd um you know not devalue the question and that unlocked it all for you that one question right that set in motion, we could argue, this whole unfolding for the last two years, right? Yeah, that, that's true. It was someone asked and someone said, I want you to be real. And so I told them how I was really doing. And so there you are. So we, yeah. have, the, so we have the answer. Yes, here um, we are. Um, but I really do think that one of the things you said to me in other conversations is that workplaces need to have the spaces, the structures, the processes to use management speak. Gross. I know it's gross, but we need to have all that stuff so that people can say, how are you and really want to know? And the person who's being asked can say really how it is. And I think I think that would be the great gift to the world, perhaps, you know, of of the work you've done in the last two years is is some of that yeah I, I agree maybe we we set another norm of either you 100 percent answer that question or you say i'm not going to answer that because there are things i don't want to tell a coworker. Right. <laughs> it's like let's be 100 percent honest <laughs> i would never i would uh, well i would never tell i would never i would never tell someone like you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe that's a less good idea yeah, but... yeah. well it's great and what about powerlifting this year are we going to compete you're going to compete in the powerlifting world this year or i got mad yes. you are right why not right yeah, so um, I'm actually, so there's two major federations. There's the USA Powerlifting Association. Um, I won their national championship for my weight class last year. There's also the U.S. Powerlifting Association. Yep. They have, like, slightly different rules. So I'm doing a qualifier for their federation for their nationals, uh, what is it, in about three weeks. Okay. Um and then I will try to compete at their nationals in Las Vegas in June. And I should be able to, I think, both win that nationals and then break a bunch of world records. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I, did you, I don't know. Are you in your 40s, did you say? I'm uh, 45. 45, right. Well, you're yeah. not supposed to be doing shit like this. Yeah, you need to take more. <laughs> so my, my oldest competitor in the weight class that I've found is 30. Right. And then uh, the ones who made nationals last year, they were both, uh, or second and third place, they were 23. Right and on. so almost half my age. <laughs> yeah, you teach those puppies a lesson. But look, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending the time on Think Bigger, Think Better. I think uh, this will be this will be a big one. Um, I appreciate all of you for listening, and I appreciate Newton for being here. Thank you.